political scientists have increasingly been drawing on the broader interdisciplinary literature on cognition, psychology and physiology. A growing body of literature demonstrates a connection between physiological processes and political attitudes. Individual ideological development depends on a complex interaction between social and biological factors. Yet, the results emerging from this field have yet to be fully integrated into our understanding of public opinion. How and why do individuals develop different political attitudes? As part of the conference Politics, Physiology and Cognition, Advances in Theory and Methods, we interviewed three experts who addressed pressing questions on the relationship between human cognition, physiology and the development of political attitudes. Our next guest is Dr. Darren Schreiber, Professor of Political Science at the University of Exeter in the United Kingdom. Dr. Schreiber's research focuses on the use of brain imaging to study how people think about politics. As part of the conference, Dr. Schreiber presented the paper Neural Nonpartisans, Neurological Differences of Partisans and Nonpartisans. So this is um, following on a line of work I've been doing uh, for the last 20 or so years trying to understand political cognition by using functional brain imaging and seeing if we can uh, understand differences in among different groups or different types of people um, based on brain activity. And in this project, in an earlier project, I had found that we could identify people as being Republican or Democrat uh, using brain imaging techniques while they were gambling with uh, shockingly high accuracy. Um, so we can basically correctly classify somebody as being Republican or Democrat with about 83% accuracy. And uh, later work that is followed on by um, other people have shown that they could use brain imaging to correctly classify people even at the 95% accuracy level, which um, was frankly just mind-blowing because um, if I know that the classic thing is that you get your party from your parents. This is the, the traditional way from the 1950s um, was that you get your party from your parents and um, that predicts at about 69% accuracy. If I know your mom and dad, I can correctly classify you with about 69% accuracy. The idea that we could look at your brain um, and correctly guess whether you're Republican or Democrat uh, at 85 or 95% accuracy was just kind of mind-blowing. One possibility might be, and one inference that people often make, is that maybe this means that it's genetic, um, that somehow you're hardwired to be Republican or Democrat. The good news, interesting twist, is that our results are so strong that they can't be genetic. Um, so we know from studies of twins in other contexts that um, your political attitudes are about 40, 50% heritable. So the fact that we can identify uh, you with such high accuracy tells us that we're capturing something that's more than just the biological. And again, since we can capture um, better, since we can correctly classify people better than your parents, which also you get all your genetics from and a huge part of your social environment from, this is telling us something really interesting is, is going on. The other part of this general line of research that's interesting is that we're able to figure this out using, it turns out, non-political tasks. So in my case, um, we're studying people's brains as they're gambling. And in political science for a long, long time, there's been this behavioral paradigm that we don't really care about what you think or what you feel, we just care about your behaviors. 
And in this context, the interesting twist is that I can't look at your gambling behaviors and detect any pattern in terms of political identity. The behaviors are identical between the liberals and the conservatives, but the neural mechanisms are what differentiates people. Um, so there's just all sorts of fascinating implications of, you know, this, is some, this was data that was collected originally for a study of gambling um, and, and, and of addiction and risk propensities and differences in risk propensities, and we reuse that data looking um, at whether these participants in the previous work were registered as Republicans or Democrats. Using brain imaging from people gambling allowed political scientists to understand genetic was not the only explanation when trying to understand political affiliation. According to Dr. Schreiber, the human brain is meant to be political. Even if people are observed while doing a non-political task, it is possible to predict their affiliation. If brain imaging allows us to predict political affiliation, can we use it to understand non-partisanship? Dr. Schreiber explains how his methodology can be used to study non-partisanship and why political polarization makes the life of political scientists difficult in the US. So this paper then takes it kind of to the next logical level, which is looking at non-partisans. So um, while there's been a lot of attention paid to partisanship in the United States and in other places. Um, and very often political scientists uh, get very annoyed that you know, up to 40% of their data has to be thrown away because they don't fit into one uh, bin or the other. These people say they're independents. Well, what do we do with them? So the traditional thing in political science has been to classify those people as either um, see them as, as covert partisans, to basically say, well, you say you're independent, but we usually, we view you, we ask you a bunch of questions and we identify you then as a leaner, as somebody who's either, you mostly vote Republican, you mostly vote Democrat. And so the idea has been, you're a covert partisan. You're like, you say you're independent, but you're not really, and we behaviorally believe. So we're just gonna put you into those bins that allows us to keep more of the data in the study. <clears throat> and also really, you know, in a certain way, like if you think about it in terms of identity theory, it really undermines a person's sense of their own identity. Mm -hmm. If they identify as an independent and yet we're forcing them into a category that is violative of their identity, that's maybe a little problematic. Um, and uh, it's also particularly interesting because, like I said, 40% of the electorate now um, is identifying as independent and that's been increasing as there's been all this polarization. So the trick of polarization is because so many people are identifying as independent and not wanting to get mixed up into politics, a lot of survey data ends up getting pretty biased because you call somebody up on the phone, you say, hey, we'd like to you know, ask you some questions about your political attitudes, and they go, politics, click, hang up the phone. So we're finding um, this is a larger part of the, the electorate than it had been in the past, um, that maybe some of the polarization has actually been exacerbated. Um, because so many nonpartisans are not participating, it's, it's underestimating the strength and the power of the middle. So the dominant theory right now of why there's so much polarization in America um, is centering around identity theory. Um, that uh, there are ways in the US and a lot of other places that identities have lined up such that you can be a, you can look through your, your uh, geographic, your uh, racial, your religious, your socioeconomic, your career, all these other things line up nicely to put you in one bin or the other. There's much less what we call cross cleavage or cross pressuring um, in identities. 
And so this identity theory is used to explain why Republicans and Democrats are hating on each other at an all-time high when maybe policy-wise they're not that different. Um, and, and at least at the, the level of voters, at the level of elites, maybe some other things are going on. But in this study, we're looking then to see, okay, we figured out we can identify Republicans and Democrats distinctly. Can we do similar things with the nonpartisans? And um, to look at this, we, we looked at areas of the brain that were related to social cognition, because some previous work I had done um, suggested that perhaps politics is a form of social cognition. Um, and even more broadly, that perhaps the reason we have the brain that we have is to think about politics, um, that we've evolved this massive brain to enable us to solve the problem of being essentially, as Aristotle said, political animals. So here we're brain imaging people who are partisans. We're comparing them with the nonpartisans um, while they're doing this gambling task. And we're able to successfully distinguish um, Republicans and Democrats, or at least find some, some areas of, of brain activity that are different for this gambling task um, regarding whether they're partisans or nonpartisans. Um, and if the dominant hypothesis was that they were merely covert partisans, if that was true, we shouldn't be able to see these brain activity differences. The fact that we do is at least a proof in concept that there might be a, a there there in terms of identity. Brain imaging allows political scientists to predict people's political orientation. How does it work? What are they specifically observing? Dr. Schreiber explains there are differences in terms of risk, threats and disgust between people on the left or on the right. So, you know, we're not entirely sure. There's a whole literature that has shown that um, in a, in a, using a ton of different methods, so this is convergent lines of research from a whole bunch of different methodologies, survey data, experimental data, uh, physiological data, that shows there does seem to be some difference in terms of risk, threat, disgust between people on the left and on the right. And the idea is that perhaps there are um, just, you know, if you have a, a, a large group of people, maybe an evolutionary, the kind of the evolutionary psychology story, and it's clearly a story at this point, um, is that perhaps there was, you know, evolutionary some reasons for it to be useful to have some people saying, oh, let's go taste that berry, and some people going, well, let's not taste that berry. And um, that this may be related to differences in um, willingness to try new things or to be sensitive to threat or to disgust. Um, exactly where it comes from, we're not too sure. But what we do find quite reliably is if you prime people with the idea of terrorism, you can make them more socially conservative. If you, um, and there's tons and tons of study that show that kind of threat leads to conservative um, in large groups across lots of countries with true for both liberals and conservatives and moderates. Um, a little bit of work showing that if you say, you know, you are Wonder Woman, you've got the bracelets of invulnerability and blah, 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 that we can make you to be more liberal. Um, and so um, there does seem to be something in at least replicable work that, that, uh, that, that gives us an idea that there's something about this security or, or safety or disgust or whatever. Um, and what exactly the, the conceptual underlying point is still a little unclear. So um, there seems to be some value to processing the world um, in these different ways. Um, we know for a whole bunch of different um, systems that behaviors, and this is one of the, the interesting critiques of the behaviorist approach, we might do the same behaviors for different reasons. And this brain imaging evidence suggests that we can get identical behaviors from people on the left or on the right. 
with perhaps different ways that they're framing it. And the fact that this is non-political uh, to me is, is quite interesting, right? Because it says something's going on that really, we call their paper red brain, blue brain, like being a Republican, being a Democrat really changes the way you're framing your experience of risk in the world way outside of the political context. Um, and that may be because of messages, it might be because of identity, it might be because of culture, um, et cetera, um, and norms, whatever. We don't know the, all the mechanisms of why exactly that works, but the fact that we can fairly reliably do it, I think it brings us to, to some really fundamental questions about human nature. We have swung between, you know, is something genetic slash biological or is it coming from the environment? And this work shows, I think, that it's, it's really this intertwining of these two things. Political orientation goes beyond political behavior. By observing people's reaction to risk or threat, it is possible to predict if they will be more on the left or on the right on the political scale. However, studies seem to focus on negativity and conservatism. Yeah, this is a, a huge problem, I would say, in psychological and emotional research more generally, is that we've studied a lot more of negativity than we have positivity. Yeah. So um, I had the chance when I was at UPenn to get to know Martin Seligman a little bit, who had done some work on positive psychology and this entire intellectual agenda, like let's look at positive emotions. Um, that hasn't been done nearly as much. I mean, I, that's why I like this study where they ask people to think about themselves as like Wonder Woman, because you know, if you're, if you're invulnerable, that makes you more liberal. I mean, that should, somebody should have tested that a long time ago, given how replicable the threat leads to, uh, to this conservatism. If you don't have a threat, there should be a symmetry that it goes the other way. It looks like there is, but there's been a tremendous, I would say, bias in the literature, both of studying conservatism um, and, and trying to, you know, and this goes back to work, you know, even the 1940s and 50s, um, rather than really symmetrically looking, do these constructs work the opposite way? Um, and I think we haven't done enough uh, to do that. It's partly why I'm so excited to also look at nonpartisans. Um, looking at the nonpartisans at least gets us a chance of looking at some other parts of the, of the distribution of, of political ide ideology and, and public opinion. Um, on the other side, there is some work done on looking at extremists and using the same approaches or similar methodologies, and we're getting some nuance in that. But one of the challenges is that this is all first cut science. Um, it's, we're trying to grab the low hanging fruit, the simple stuff, um, and the, the really cool questions, I think, are the good news is are, are to come. Um, and I think we'll get a lot more insight as we continue to let this work develop over time. The other good news, I think, is that we've got so many different converging lines of evidence that are pointing in similar directions. Mm -hmm. So it means it's probably not just an artifact of the weird method or the, the population that we're using. Um, you can see differences in a lot of different regions um, where this is done. So mostly the, the brain imaging stuff has been done in the US or in the UK. But the fact that you can see differences in, in at least a couple different places geographically and under different political systems and different party systems um, is useful. Uh, some of the work on threat has been replicated in a whole bunch of different uh, countries um, and in a bunch of different contexts and a bunch of different methods. So given that it's such early days to quickly find some converging lines of evidence is, is particularly nice. Um, especially given broader questions in, uh, in the sciences about replicability, um, to find replication fairly either conceptual or you know, 
um, other replication and fairly quickly um, is gives me a little hope that we're not just doing you know modern day uh, you know reading of the bumps on the skull. Brain imaging allows political scientists to predict if people are Democrats or Republicans with 95% accuracy. This result is, indeed, mind-blowing. But what happens in multi-party systems? So, again, um, the best evidence that we have in multi-party systems is coming on, on the intersection between these biological and political things is coming from uh, twin studies. So twin studies are nice because there's twins all over the world, and um, there's people who've been studying twins all over the world, and very quickly the people studying twins all over the world realize that like some things are really culturally dependent, really context dependent. And so very early on in the field of behavior genetics, they started just building replication in at the very foundation. So there's paired samples between like Virginia and Australia. And so they would always kind of just run studies. If they're running a study in Australia, they'd run in the same kind of thing in Virginia. Um, and there's a bunch of different places that have done that. And with some of the uh, heritability stuff on political attitudes, they have run these across a lot of different countries, a lot of different populations. The brain imaging stuff, this, this, the psychophysiological measures that some of my colleagues here are doing um, have also been replicated. They're attempting to replicate. And sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Um, and that's useful to know whether how contingent it is. The brain imaging stuff um, has been run, like I said, in US, you know, a few different US samples and UK um, samples, but um, the advantage of studying politics in the United States is it's a two-party system. Um, the disadvantage of studying the, the politics in the United States is it's a two-party system. And, um, and sometimes that uh, two-party system, there is way more diversity among and within the parties um, than one would think at first blush. There are um, a lot of people who are registered as Republican who are not Donald Trump supporters. And um, there are a lot of people who are Democrats. You know, my, um, back in the day, there were um, a lot of liberal Republicans and a lot of conservative Democrats. That's not quite happening as much anymore. But um, there, there is variation within those groups. Um, I remember a friend of mine a while ago who was uh, from Texas and always thought of herself as like the most liberal person in Texas. And when she moved to Seattle, she realized she was the most conservative person in Seattle. And so there, there is more variation within these things. But the complexity of party dynamics um, means these issues are much more interesting. The UK example right now is really interesting because the Brexit stuff doesn't line up with ideology as nicely. Um, there's a lot more stuff going on, which is why both the Labour and the Conservative Party have been highly conflicted about uh, Brexit. There's you know, a number of people that are not super keen about uh, leaving the UK, which is why the Tories haven't managed to pull together a coalition on that. And there's a bunch of people in Labour who are like, you know, we don't really like the European Union. Um, so these things, politics, the reason that I love studying politics and the reason I think that we have the brain that we do is precisely because politics is crazy hard and we need the most complicated thing in the universe to, to process um, the most complicated thing in the universe, which is human politics. On that beautiful thought on the human brain, we want to thank Professor Darren Schreiber for having taken the time to speak with us. Thank you for listening. For the CSDC podcast, I am Esther Armagnac. See you next time.